challenging situation you had where you were close to giving up in your life, giving up on your dreams. And I failed my first test. I was, was in his history class, Dr. Baker's class, two weeks into a summer school class. I was 18 years old and, and I thought I was listening and making sense out of what the guy was saying, but I didn't know how to study. I didn't know how to do the reading. I didn't know how to do it all yet. And then I came home crying and that's when my mom said what she did. And if she hadn't have said that, I probably would have gone back to surfing, just going back to Hawaii. But my mom said what she said and that she's gonna love me no matter what. And that's when I made a determination. I'm gonna learn how to read and study and master this thing and teach. And that's when I got the dictionary out. And I literally memorized 30 words a day until my vocabulary was strong enough to pass. If you fill your mind with great ideas, your life becomes a great experience. So I'm a firm believer that if you set your mind to do something that's deeply meaningful, and then that have no option, there is no turning back. You go forward, no matter what happens, go forward. Amazing things happen. morning everyone welcome to chief here professional problem solver coming to you live with another episode of the overcomers today it's a very exciting day because we have a special guest dr Demartini. uh he is extremely credible one of our biggest guests ever he's a, a polymath and a world renowned human behavior expert his work has been described by students as the most comprehensive body of work an extensive library of wisdom Dr. John Martini's mission and vision is to share knowledge and wisdom that empowers you to become a master of your own life and destiny. He is an internationally published author, a global educator, and the founder of Martini Method and Revolutionary Tool in Modern Psychology. His education curriculum ranges from personal growth seminars to corporate empowerment programs. He helps individuals and big, big, big companies. His teachings are the synthesis of knowledge and wisdom from the greatest minds through history, and his curriculum is designed to help you empower and inspire all seven areas of your life. His signature program, The Breakthrough Experience, has been delivered in person and online globally to over 100,000 students. Uh, Dr. Martini is the author of 40 bestsellers, self-development books, and uh, manuscripts such as the bestseller, The Breakthrough Experience, which has been translated in over 36 languages. He has produced 100 plus audio and video online courses and products covering subjects such as building wealth, mind and body connection, accessing your seven greatest powers, conscious intention, powerful business insight, and many, many more. The first time when I saw Dr. Martini was in the uh, famous documentary, The Secret. Uh, he's an expert in the law of attraction and manifesting 
your heart's desires. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. John DiMartini. Hi, I'm Dr. John DiMartini. Over the last 46 years, I've been dedicated to maximizing human awareness and potential. And I've been blessed to be a teacher all these years. And for the last 36 years, I've really been busy traveling the world, sharing ideas. Anything that I've been able to learn from the greatest ideas, generators and minds and thinkers on how to maximize your human performance and awareness to live an inspired and magnificent life. If you look very carefully when it comes to the secret and the power of our mind, the power of our intention in our daily lives, it's all around us. All we got to do is open our eyes and look. There's so many different types of genius that if, you, know, you could have mathematical genius, you could have musical genius, you could have creative genius, and then you also have business genius. It's based on whatever the person has as highest on their value. Everybody has a set of priorities, a set of values in life, and whenever they are living congruently and in alignment with what's highest on their value. They awaken their executive center in the brain. And then it is inspired visions, self-governance, strategic planning, creative insights, all those start to emerge in the mind. So genius is inherent in all of us, but it's gonna be according to what they value most. Many people think that money has somehow got a moral issue, but money is neither good nor evil, it's just money. But if you see somebody using it in a way that supports your values, you'll label it good. You see somebody doing something with it that goes against your values, you'll label it bad. But money's neutral. So you have to get past the moral issue about money, appreciate what its use is, which means you serve somebody, otherwise they wouldn't be paying you. And now you're valuing yourself and you're investing in yourself. Because the moment you start to invest in you, other people begin to invest in you. You know, if you fill your day with the highest priority actions you can, your day doesn't fill up with low priority distractions. And they get clear about what they want to do and they prioritize their daily actions. They delegate to lower priority things and they get on with doing the most important things. And that's something that's common to the people that achieve the most. That's uh, the thing that I attempt to show people how to do and train them how to do so. Because I really believe that it doesn't matter what you've been through, no matter what you've gone through, or what you're experiencing. What matters is you have a dream, do you get clear on it, can you articulate it, and can you prioritize your actions towards it every day? and let everything that comes be on the way, not in the way. It's all about your perceptions, decisions, and actions, and the questions you ask yourself in your life. And if you ask amazing questions, you can lead yourself to an amazing life. Welcome. Okay, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you, Jan. Uh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for accepting my invitation, and I was really, really excited about this conversation. So um, our show is about overcoming adversity, and uh, hopefully that hopefully with your your story and input, uh, you're going to touch someone who's going through big challenges and trying to understand the way the mind works, the way the body works, how they're connected, and how we can uh, get out of our own self-sabotage and our own um, self-destruction sometimes. So per tradition, we uh, ask a question. One of the things I believe is that uh, there's a ripple effect that comes from generations. So I'm really curious about where the Demartini name comes from. Uh, tell us about your grandparents on both sides, your mom and dad, and then share with us a little bit about your parents. <laughs> <laughs> um, my father was an engineer. 
who owned a plumbing business. He did, he was not a plumber. He just had a bunch of plumbers working for him. And it was an engineer. My mom was an artist and she had an art gallery. And so the left brain meets the right brain. <laughs> My dad wanted to be studying philosophy, but he didn't think he could make a living at it. And lo and behold, his son did. So I'm, I'm the philosopher, I guess, and, and the student of life. My grandparents, uh, well, my father's parents uh, lived in New York, and um, but their parents lived in Italy. And when I was in Torino, it looked like the people around me looked similar to me, so I think it was in that area. And then my mom's uh, side were on English and American Indian. So I got the stiff hair, I think, from that uh, lineage. But they joined together and... And they were, you know, amazing people. I really had some cool parents, so I have no complaints. You know, some people have this story about their life. They go, oh, my parents did this, my parents did that. I, I have a lot of love and appreciation for my parents. They were pretty cool. They, they gave me a lot of freedom to do what I really dreamed about doing. So I'm Good. grateful. They were encouraging parents. <laughs> well, they, uh, I was pretty determined to do what I want to do, and they didn't, they didn't try to stop me. They just... They said, look, if that's if you know what you want to do, then give yourself permission to go after it. Good. That's so important for uh, parents to encourage their child. Now, tell me, what is the first significant memory that you have? When did you realize that you're alive and how old were you? What was the moment when you were like, all right, I am consciously here? <laughs> My first memory? Yeah. Uh, I was two. Uh, I do have a lot of memories of two, but one of them was my mom made spaghetti and was in the kitchen and my sister was at a friend's house and my father and I were eating at the table and she came and put spaghetti in our uh, plates and we ate it up and licked our plates as if we never got the spaghetti and tried to convince her. My dad was a trickster too, like I am, and tried to convince her that she never gave us. We've been waiting for the spaghetti. And we licked our plate, made sure that nobody could tell that we'd eaten the, the spaghetti already while she was still trying to prepare stuff. And we, um, so I remember it too, we were joking. My dad and I were joking with mom and putting, teasing her to say, we want another serving. <laughs> I also, I also remember when I was two in a little bitty swimming pool with my sister and a dog named Rex. Mm. So I was two and I was just standing up and standing on the edge of it and walking around the pool, you know, this little round circular blow up pool and the dog. And we were playing with our dog and my sister in the pool. So I remember it too. So I have very young memories of two, a lot of stuff at two. I worked, working in the yard, working in the garden, uh, looking at flowers, uh, playing with dogs, walking around the neighborhood. I remember a lot of stuff at two. I feel like my first memories come from, the age of two as well. I, I clearly remember that I was two for some reason. Um, tell me about your teenage years. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Uh, I was in Houston, Texas until I was 12. Okay. <clears throat> My parents moved from Houston, Texas to Richmond, Texas when I was 12. I um, was sort of playing baseball and doing a little surfing. Mm. I was into sports. I was not doing well in academic. I didn't know I didn't know how to read till I was 18. I had learning problems. I had dyslexia and I had a speech impediment. So um, when we moved there, baseball was not the same as it was in the city. 
the coach was not there. The half the, the people didn't show up. And so I stopped playing baseball and went to surfing and left home at 13. So I, I and not because I had a problem. At, you see, my dad and I were playing pool in the in the barn. We had a pool table in this barn. And um, my, we were playing. And afterwards, I said, Dad, I need to go. I'm getting cleaned up. I'm going to go into town. And I, we lived 13 miles from the town. So I either had to walk, hitchhike, ride a bike, 13 miles. Wow. But I, um, I, was, I told my dad, I said, I'm going into town. He said, no, you've been in town too much this week. You need to stay home tonight. I said, no, I'm going to town. <laughs> and he says, no, you need to stay home tonight. I didn't want to tell him that my best friend, his parents were out of town and he was bringing his girlfriend over and I was bringing my girlfriend. And in those days when you're, you know, 13 years old, you, you want to kiss. Yeah. So I used to just want to do these long kisses with these, this girl. And I was not going to pass it up and undermine that. So I told my dad, I'm going to town. He says, well, if you go to town, you're making the decision to be a man on your own. So if you go to town, you're on your own now. And I went, okay, I guess that's what it is. I was not passing up that deal with a kiss that girl. So I, uh, you know, that Italian blood in me, I wanted to kiss that girl. So I, I left home and my, my dad sat there watching TV as I packed my bag and I got my duffel bag and I went into town and, so I left home at a young age, not because I was upset with my parents, but my dad just asked me to stay home one night and I told him I'm not doing it. So I decided I was going to be big enough to stand on my own two feet and live. So from 13 on, I, I was out and out and about doing my own thing. And I've learned how to be an entrepreneur. My dad trained me at a young age when I was nine, how to run a company. And I had nine employees when I was nine. He wanted to make sure I was street smart since I couldn't read. So I, I figured out how to survive out there and left home and Made it to California when I was 14 and moved to Hawaii when I was 15. And I lived in Hawaii from 15 to 18. So wow. I, didn't ever, I never finished high school, but I came back at 18. I took a GED and then I started back school. And then I went to 10 years of college later. That's, that's a great story. I actually left my home when, when I was 14 as well. <laughs> I had uh, rich friends and my, my parents were conservative. And they took care of me, uh, you know, they still took care of me until 18. But uh, I, I left the first summer uh, when I turned 14. I left and I started working on my own. I just wanted, I wanted more uh, resources in my life. And I figured that I can, I'm old enough to, to get it myself. So that's very, very interesting. Did you learn how to surf in Galveston? Or? <laughs> I, I did my first, the very first day, I was nine years old. My parents got these big clunker boards. And for some reason, I have no idea why, the very first wave I had paddled into, I got up and I rode. And mm -hmm. I knew how to surf somehow from day one. And I just could stand on a bird. Now, those are giant boards in those days. But yeah. I ended up riding waves and moving to Hawaii and surfed the North Shore. And I got into three surf movies and a surf uh, book, a famous book, and uh, also some magazines. So I got to do pretty good surfing. I wasn't in the very top tier. I was in tier two. Wow. So, yeah, I was asking because Galveston Beach is, is close to Houston. So I was assuming that you yeah. surf. <laughs> the, the surf area, you need a hurricane for surf there. <laughs> but, but California, I, I, when I was in 14, I was in California and I went down into Mexico. And then at 15, I moved to Hawaii and I lived on the North Shore. I lived under a park, first under a bridge, then a park bench, then a bathroom, then an abandoned car, and then eventually a tent. So I kept social climbing. <laughs> yeah. You were following the, the surfing passion. I, I just, I was endless summer, man. I was just wanting to go and do, and I just wanted to ride big waves. That's all I cared about at the time. That's awesome.
How did how did it uh, tell me about the first few days, the first few weeks when you decided to be on your own? Where did you sleep the first night? Well, the first night I stayed there at that, that buddy's house, and then I stayed there I think three or four nights, and I went over to another buddy's house for a couple nights, mm -hmm. and then um, some of them, <clears throat> the parents didn't want me to do it. They they said you need to go home, and <laughs> I decided to stay at at a drive-in, the Texas Grill drive-in. I stayed there all night. And that was a long night. <laughs> putting your head on a table. And then I found a, a park, uh, Rose Ridge Park, and I hung out at the park. And then I went into Houston. There were a lot more resources in Houston. I lived in a bowling alley, a 24-hour 24 24-hour bowling alley that existed called Stadium Bowl at the time. And I stayed there. And then I would run into various, you know, people there. And, and then they'd let me stay at their house sometimes. And then, you know, I just figured out how to do it. By the time I was 14, I was making money on panhandling on the beach to get me a little... I, I either stayed behind the Golden Bear, which is a nightclub, or I stayed in a, an alley, or I met, met this girl. I started living with a 27-year-old when I was 14. And uh, yeah, and it was it was great. <laughs> I can't complain. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, people think, well, that's a terrible thing. No, it isn't. It was a great thing. She was like a mother and a girlfriend at the same time. It's quite nice. Uh, but I, I learned that nothing's missing. It just changes form. And that... Um, you know, I had family and parents in new forms, constantly changing forms. And I, I, I didn't really have an anxiety or fear about missing out on something because I felt like I was being provided. I felt I was being guided and provided. And um, yeah, amazing things happened. I, I, then I, when I moved to Hawaii, I, one time in the summertime, I joined this uh, religious group and we went out and we would just go and do service during a day and wait for something to come. And we would fast if we didn't do it. But I found that that wasn't as great. I figured out it better to go back panhandling on the beach and make enough money. So I used to do dog tricks on the corner of Lures Street and Kalakoa and, and uh, did these little dog tricks. And people would pay, you know, 50 cents to whatever. And I made enough money to get food that way. Was that so right? Which I was dog? creative. Um, so you, it, it was more like it felt, felt more like an adventure. Even though you had some tough times, you weren't going back. No, no, it was an adventure, definitely. I met amazing people. I met, I met Howard Hughes when I was 14. I met Timothy Leary when I was 14. I met Ted Nugent. Wow. I met, I met some interesting characters. I, I met some of the top surfers and hung out with them. You know, I met people in Hollywood. I, I, I was a, an adventurous kid, so I can't complain. Did you, I, 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 you know, people say, well, do you have anything to regret? No, I have no regrets. There's nothing in my life that I would do different. I would just say, thank you. You know, anything you can't say thank you for in life is baggage. Anything you can't say thank you for is fuel. So I'm, I'm, a, and I've, I've, I've been shot at. <laughs> I've been, somebody tried to stab me in Mexico. I mean, I've had some interesting character experiences, but wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't regret any of them. I, I'm very grateful for all those. They're all made me who I am today and my ability to help people today. Did your parents ever try to uh, look for you or? <laughs> I think they, I think they figured, well, this is working. We're saving quite a bit of money. <laughs> no, they, my, my dad, one time I saw him on the beach when his car looking for me, driving up and down the beach, just seeing if he could come up, find me. And by the time I went to try to uh, catch up with him, uh, he was gone. I, I tried to run and, and do it because he was going faster than I could run. You were going to tell him, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, but, but um, occasionally my sister would come down to the beach and see how I was doing, and I would tell him I'm doing fine. I mean, I figured it out. I'm, I'm doing great. I'm surfing and doing what I love doing. My dad uh, and mom, I went to visit them uh, when I was 14. Yeah, 14 one night or well, one afternoon. 
and told them I want to get some refresh on some clothes. And they asked me, how's it going and what's going on? They didn't tell me, you know, you need to come home or anything like that. They said, tell me about your adventures. And then they said, can you give me a ride to the freeway? And my mom and dad gave me a ride to freeway to hitchhike to California when I was 14. And my dad said, make sure you got $13 in your pocket. So that way you don't get pulled over for vagrancy. And I always kept $13 wadded up in a, in a, in my wallet, my little folding thing that was this little uh, zipper thing to make sure that if I got pulled over, I had $13 because it can't, you know, and if you hitchhike in Texas, you can hitchhike on the highway, but in California, you have to hitchhike on the on-ramps. Mm. So I learned the ropes and I figured out how to do it. And I met amazing people hitchhiking. It's amazing. I mean, today people would be freaked out about hitchhiking around there. You know, think you'd be taken or killed or whatever. And I had a few close calls, you know, I had a, some characters out there trying to do weird stuff, but my, I had a, an instinct or an intuition. I don't know. That was, that was guiding me along the way. And I, it, somehow it was always worked through the crazies, whatever happened. Yeah. Hitchhiking now is paid and it's called Uber. <laughs> yeah. Now, well, I tried to drop my kids off on the freeway, but they got a, they had my American express and they ended up getting a thing and going and getting dinner somewhere and, and going shopping. So <laughs> it wasn't quite the same adventure. Yeah. Uh, where, where did you stay in California? Were you in uh, Venice Beach, Santa Monica? You know, when I first got there, I ended up going where they, it was not complete. Interstate 10 in 1968 was not complete across America, but there were parts of it that were complete. And it took you right into Santa Monica area. So right off of Santa Monica Boulevard there. So I got there and then I hitchhiked past the airport, past Venice Beach, down to, to Corona, what do you call it, Delray or whatever. Yeah. And then down to where the, the airport was and around the point and then through Long Beach, some Seal Beach. And I stopped in Huntington. And when I got to Huntington, I knew this is it. This is the spot. Oh, yeah. That was my surf capital, man. And uh, so and I saw the girls on the beach there and I said, this is where it's at. This is where I need to be. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how did you end up in Hawaii? A lot of people from California end up in Hawaii. But uh, when well, I, you... panhandled, I panhandled enough money for $86. You could fly to Hawaii from wow. LA four in the morning, 86 bucks. So I, I could panhandle. I was good. I was, I knew how to get about $30 a day panhandling. That's good money in those days. You know, just you wasn't getting quarters from girls and chatting and doing odd things. And I worked at Jack's surf shop and I made sandwiches and smoothies. And then they would give me something to eat for the day. And, and uh, they wouldn't pay me anything, but they just give me some food. And then I'd go panhandle on the beach and I accumulated it and I had to get all the coins that they did. And I had to go and turn them into dollar bills because they would jingle and they would hear I had more money than people I was getting it from. And so I was I earned enough money to be able to fly to Hawaii. And I figured out how to survive over in Hawaii, living in there in a, on the beach there. Did you uh, land in Honolulu or Big Island? Where did you go? I landed in Honolulu and then I... I uh, Stayed at one part of the afternoon in, in there, and I then hitchhiked out to the North Shore, and I slept under the Sunset Bridge on Kamehameha Highway the first night. Too loud. Really <laughs> loud. da dump da dump da dump da dump hearing it going over the bridge all day. And then I uh, moved over to Iakai Beach Park. I walked over there, and then that was the perfect spot. So I mm -hmm. lived at Iakai Beach Park for quite a while. And then Puna Point in Haleiwa, I lived in the jungle there. So I figured out how to survive, and you know, it wasn't hard. I knew where... Mango trees were, I knew where avocado trees were, I knew where banana trees, I knew where pineapples were, I knew, you know, how to get eat seaweed and get crabs and coconuts. And I figured out whatever's edible, I, I found out where they were and I, I was I was doing pretty good. I love Hawaii. 
I've been to Big Island and Honolulu and definitely one of my favorite spots in the world. So uh, you stayed in Hawaii. When did you meet your first love? Or was that the, the first love was the girl that you left home or the 27-year-old? Well, the, first, the first love I had was Martha Rose Scartosi. This is a hot Italian chick. I was five. <laughs> this, this girl was hot. And, I, and she was the smartest girl in the class, and I was the dumbest kid in the class. And I used to walk her home and carry her books, and then I'd let her do flashcards. And I would ask her, what did she learn? And she would tell me stuff. And that's how I made it through elementary school, by asking smart kids things, because I couldn't read. So I would just ask them, and she was helping me. And she, I had definitely had a crutch. I still have a scar in my hand. You can't see it here. Let's see. Mm. It, it goes across there. There's a there's a scar across there because I her her mom came home and I wasn't supposed to be at her house. And I jumped over the fence and caught it on the top of the fence and caught my hand up there, got stuck on there and ripped my thing. And I had about an eight inch. It's about eight inches across that scar. Still, I've got that scar from Martha Rose Scartosi when I had the hots for her. Is she around? Have you looked her up on Facebook? I, I can't find her name. I, I, I type in her name, but the, she got married and her name changed. So I don't know. I haven't been able to find her. I was, but I did. I did get about two months ago, I was doing a live seminar and there was somebody on there and she said, is that John Martini from Longfellow Elementary School? And and uh, I was amazed. This, this girl that I went to Longfellow Elementary was in first grade, second and third grade. Wow. Colleen Broussard. I have a picture of her standing next to me in this class picture. And I thought she was kind of a hot chick too. She was a, she was a cool looking lady. And uh, <laughs> she contacted me and asked me if that was the, the guy from Longfellow. And I said, absolutely. I remember you, Colleen. And I sent the school picture to her and we were going to try to catch up, but she's not living in the same place. So I don't, but we had a nice conversation on, uh, on WhatsApp. So, but that's 60 years, <laughs> 60, 63 years I've known her. Wow. But I, I haven't been able to find Martha Rose. I asked her if she knew where Martha Rose was. She said, no, I have lost contact with her since second grade. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you tell me now from those teenage years in Hawaii, when did you, you obviously went to, you went back to finish the GED and when did you fall in love with self-development and uh, when did you start the journey of self-awareness? Was it in Hawaii? Was it, it, after it, it, it was in Hawaii. I was 17 years old. It was November 18th, 1972. And I went to a yoga class and Paul C. Bragg was a guest speaker there. And he, he, what he said that night just absolutely changed the course of my life. He said that we have a body, we have a mind and we have a soul. The body must be guided by the mind. The mind be directed by the soul. And that what you think about, what you visualize, what you affirm, what you feel, what you write about, what you act upon um, and what you're grateful for becomes your reality. Mm. And nobody ever talked to me like this. You know, I was told I would never read or write or communicate, never mouth thing, never go very far in life in first grade. And I, I believe that was true. I just assumed that. But this guy made me think that night that maybe I could overcome my learning problems and learn how to read. And so I went on a quest after meeting him that night. I studied with him because he, he had classes on the other side of the island and I literally hitchhiked to the other side of the island to be catch up with him and learn from this guy. And I learned a lot in three weeks before he left. And in those three weeks, I got, you know, a lot of knowledge from this guy. And I went on my journey and I decided that I was going to go back to California, hitchhike back to Texas and 
change my life and see if I could go back to school. And I almost failed initially, but I, I overcame it. I just learned how to read and I learned how to speak properly. And it was a slow starting point, but I, I, I worked and I overcame it. And now, you know, I teach research, write and travel. That's it. Everything else is delegated away. I don't do anything else. I've delegated everything except teach, research, write, travel. Everything else is off my plate. This is what I want to do as well. I just want to focus on content and yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's me. I, I teach, research, write, travel. I mean, I'll do five podcasts today, and I've got a, a seminar later in the day. It starts in in London, and I've got some consulting today. So I, you know, that's my day. Where are you at now? Are you in England or I, no? I'm actually. I normally live on my ship. And my ship is, is circumnavigates the world, called the world. Uh, but mm -hmm. I then, in, I was in Miami, and I flew to Istanbul. And then Istanbul, I went to L.A., and now I'm in Houston. And then in a few days, I go to Peru, and I get back on my ship. That's impressive. Great life. So you went back to Houston to graduate high school because uh, the yogi... I took a GED. I took a GED. GED. And guessed, and miraculously passed it. Uh, the yogi inspired you to, uh, to go back to learning. and. What happened next? Well, I failed when I tried to go back to school. I almost gave up. And my mom saw me crying in the living room because I told her I got a 27 on the test and I needed a 72 to pass. And she said, okay. And then she said, whether you become a great teacher, philosopher and travel the world, or whether you go back to riding big waves or whether you go to the streets, I just want to let you know your father and I are going to love, me, love you no matter what. And that <laughs> unconditional love was very pertinent. And when she said that, my hand went into a fist. I looked up and I saw the vision that I saw the night I met Paul Bragg of me standing in front of a million people sharing ideas and uh, being intelligent. And I said, you know, I'm going after my vision. I'm not going to let any human being. I, I said to myself, I'm going to master this thing called teaching, healing and philosophy and studying and learning and reading. And I'm going to do whatever it takes, travel whatever distance, pay whatever price to give my service of love. And I went in there and hugged her and went to my room and got the dictionary out and started memorizing a dictionary. I memorized literally 20,000 words in a dictionary and recited them, pronounced them, wrote them out. And my mom tested me on 30 words a day for two solid years. So you took the dictionary, huh? I started with a dictionary and then I started reading encyclopedias and, and now I've never stopped reading it. I've read over 30,000 books now. What is your favorite word and what word doesn't belong in the dictionary? I don't know. I, I, my favorite word is inspiration you know i wow. feel like I, i think our life desire deserves to be inspired and uh what word doesn't deserve i don't know i never thought about it I, I, as far as i'm concerned every word serves well some words are oh you think every word serves yeah every word serves somehow but it's, it's a way of communicating something is know? there is there a word that you don't like to pronounce out loud No, I mean, if I, I if I have a word that I don't know how to pronounce, I like to learn it. No, like a word that you don't like to say because you want to keep your uh, words impeccable. No, no, I'm both sacred and profane. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no problem, uh, you know, being uh, sacred or profane. I use all the words. I found out that repressing yourself isn't the way of, of mastering your life. You've got to honor both sides. You know, you don't need to get rid of half of yourself to love yourself. I'm a firm believer in honoring all, all of you. You know, I, I have, I have, no matter what, it, you know, with my high values, I have a high value on teaching, researching, and writing and traveling. And if somebody has a similar value, they're going to see me as dedicated, perseverant, and determined, and, you know, focused. But if somebody has a different set of values, maybe family or something else, they may see me pigheaded, rigid, you know, stuck, you know, 
whatever. They may have a different percent. All of that's true in their perception. So I own it all. I don't, I don't, uh, you know, I, I'm sometimes really blatant with my language and confront people. And sometimes I'm, I'm nice and mean. I went through the Oxford Dictionary, Oxford English Dictionary, and I went through and found 4,628 individual traits that human beings could have. And I went and I wrote out, I underlined it, then I put the name of somebody on the outside of that word. Who do I know expresses that trait to the fullest? Mm. And then I went and I asked, where do I, and when do I, and who do I display it? And who sees me displaying that trait? And I kept writing down where and when I did it until it was equal to what I saw in the people around me. Because the seer, the seeing, and the scene of the same. So I, I started owning the traits of everything, kind, cruel, nice, mean, honest, dishonest, everything. I found I had every trait. And I honored all those traits. I'm not trying to get rid of half these traits and only be one-sided because as the Buddha says, the desire for that which is unobtainable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. So I learned to love all parts of myself, the, the sacred, the profane, the nice, the mean, the kind, the cruel, everything. Because sometimes when I'm being tough on people, they become independent and entrepreneurial-like and it helps them change and they come back and thank me later. Sometimes when I'm nice, they become dependent. So right. nice and mean are illusions. I don't, I don't, I don't get caught in the the synonyms and antonyms of words. They all serve a purpose, as far as I'm concerned. Good. I'm sure that uh, working with hundred thousand students, you probably see a pattern with people. What do you think is people's main problem? Subordination to outer authorities, the injection of other people's values into life, the cloudiness and confusion of what's really important to them trying to live second at being somebody else instead of first at being themselves, putting people on pedestals and minimizing themselves and self-depreciating, thinking that they should be something they're not and not honoring the magnificence of who they are. That's a very nice answer. How do you learn to love yourself? If you right now have a student who tells you, how do I love myself? I don't know how to love myself. What would be your practical advice? I would tell them to go to my website and do the value determination that's free on my website that's private and go through and do 13 questions to help discern what's really, really, really priority to you, what's important to you, and to structure your hierarchy of values, and then to prioritize your life and dedicate your life to the highest priority and delegate the rest, and give yourself permission to go after what's inspiring spontaneously, that's meaningful, that serves people. You're going to have fulfillment when you serve people, when you're doing something you can't wait to get up in the morning and do. When you can't wait to get up and serve people, People can't wait to get your service. And when you do, you get the fulfillment of making a difference in the world. Everybody wants to make a difference, but it's about prioritizing your life. I, right before this show, I was on another thing and I was confronting a guy on there who says, well, I, he's trying to play victim of his history instead of master of his destiny. And he's coming up with excuses and blaming and all kinds of stuff. And I just confronted him. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not a nice guy when I see bullshit like that. I said, listen, I said, all that's not going to get you anywhere. Let's get real here. And I, I got him, what's really priority? And he started to cry. And he says, he says, nobody's cared enough about me to tell me that. Well, they, they see me suffering and they have compassion and they just listen. And then they let me run my story. And I just get, I don't get anywhere. I said, great. I confronted you. Let's prioritize your life. What do you really want to do? Let's take a look. What does your life really demonstrate? And we found it. And it, 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 I had him in tears, but not tears of sorrow, but tears of gratitude when he was done. So you yeah. give yourself permission to go after what's truly your calling in life. You have something original that's really amazing to contribute to the planet and playing small doesn't serve anybody. Giving yourself permission to be yourself and shine, not shrink, is more, more significant. How do people find that special gift? How do they find what's really their calling? 
Well, if they do the hierarchy of values a little exercise, it's the first step because it looks at what's really your life demonstrates what you value. And what you do spontaneously is what's important. If you're spontaneously working and playing and dealing with kids all day, you obviously want to be a mother or father to work with kids. In my case, I spontaneously want to learn and teach. So I read every day and I share and teach every day. That's what I love doing. That's what's inspiring. Find out what that that original, unique contribution and message and mission you have in your life and give yourself permission to go and pursue it. I'm so grateful that my parents said, look, they dropped me off the freeway, said, go live your dream, go surf the biggest waves in the world. That was my goal at the time. I almost died doing that. But so what? I got to ride giant waves, 40 foot waves at the time. That was big in those days. Now they surf 100 foot waves. But that was the dream. And I went after my dream. And my dad said, let him, he's not going to learn in academics. Let him go and follow his dream. So I'm very grateful. I would tell people the same thing. Go and follow the what's really inspiring. But make sure it's a service to people, not a narcissistic fantasy, but a real caring service because fulfillment requires you doing something that makes a difference in others' lives. Yeah. And tell me about uh, the website because I'm sure there are people right now wondering about the website. Well, my website is just drdmartini.com. Just drdmartini.com. And if they go on there, they can keep busy the rest of their life because there's you won't keep up with what I'm putting on there. You can spend your whole life. You're going to have to believe in reincarnation just to get come back and finish this website. <laughs> uh, about the test, you know, I'm sure that people want to know the test. The, well, it's a value determination. Just determine your value. Go on my website, drdmartin.com. Look for determine your values and take a moment. It's 30 minutes of your time. I guarantee it's worth the time spent. It's private and you can store it on there and you come back and do it again and keep current with what you really value. Because anytime you're not living your life according to what's highest on your value, you're devaluing yourself, and your self-worth is going to show it, and your, your confidence, and you're going to go down. So you, if you're not filling your day with high-priority actions that inspire you, your day is going to fill up with low-priority distractions that don't. So start with determining your values, and then be brave to jump in. And one day... Prioritize your life. Start prioritizing it. One day you will learn how to monetize it, right? Because most well, people you want to ask yourself, what is that I would absolutely love to do in life? How do I get handsomely and beautifully paid to do it? How can I serve people doing it? What are the highest priority actions I can do today to make it happen? What obstacles might I run into and how do I solve them in advance? Doing it. What worked, what didn't work today? How do I do it effect more effectively and efficiently tomorrow? And how did, no matter what happened, how did it help me get one step closer to that objective? If you ask those seven questions on a daily basis, I guarantee you're moving in that direction of fulfillment. Mm. Well, people might have to go back and watch this episode again. Tell me, uh, what is a specific example of a challenging situation you had where you were close to giving up in your life, giving up on your dreams, and you somehow, some way overcame it? I, well, I sort of said it already when I failed my first test. I was, was in his history class, Dr. Baker's class, two weeks into a summer school class. I was 18 years old, and I thought I was going to do like I did the, the GED and pass this thing spontaneously. And it turned out that I got a 27 test score, and I needed a 72 to pass. So the numbers were backwards. I guess I was dyslexic. And uh, – and when I saw that, I thought, wow, there's just no way I'm going to pull this off. If I can't even get a, the 27 on the test, 
And I thought I was listening and making sense out of what the guy was saying, but I didn't know how to study. I didn't know how to do the reading. I didn't know how to do it all yet. And then I came home crying and that's when my mom said what she did. And if she hadn't have said that, I probably would have gone back to surfing, just gone back to Hawaii and make surfboards. And my buddy was, uh, I was learning from Dick Brewer at Country Surfboards. My buddy eventually bought that. I'd probably be making uh, surfboards with him probably today if it wasn't for that moment. Hmm. But my mom said what she said and that she's going to love me no matter what. And that's when I made a determination. I'm going to learn how to read and study and mask this thing and teach. And that's when I got the dictionary out. And I literally memorized 30 words a day until my vocabulary was strong enough to pass. And I started reading literally 18 and 20 hours a day. And that's not a joke. I mean, I did not keep, I, my head was in a book and I got faster and faster and faster until I learned how to speed read. I learned how to read faster and photograph. I started reading four to six books on average per day, 18, 19, 20 books, sometimes on a weekend. I just kept reading and feeding my mind. If you fill your mind with great ideas, your life becomes a great experience. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a firm believer that stand on the shoulders of the greatest minds. That's why I'm a polymath today. I tried to make a list of universal laws. I made a, a list of every discipline knowable, and I made a goal to read at least 100 books in every discipline known. And that's led me to write many books in many fields just so I could learn and share with ideas. So I'm a firm believer that if you set your mind to do something that's deeply meaningful and then have no option, there is no turning back. You go forward, no matter what happens, go forward. Amazing things happen. Cool stuff happens. Yeah. What is the toughest decision you had to make in your life so far? The toughest decision? That's a good question. I don't know if I even thought about tough decisions. When I just decide to do something, I just do it. I don't know about it being a tough decision. <laughs> I don't know if it's, I have a tough decision. I, I, I learned a long time ago that, that if you have a this or that, Give yourself this, this, that, both, or neither. Mm. I mean, I was sitting in, I was in Houston, Texas. My wife wanted to have a baby where the mountain met the ocean. And it was the last baby we were going to have. So I said, okay, let's go fly out to California and have a baby. So I got a house there and I had a house in Houston. I had my office in Houston, but I was jet setting back and forth from, from San Diego area to there. So she could have a baby on where the beach and the mountain and the, and the waves were. So I did a little surfing. We had a baby. Then we went back to Houston. So that was a, a decision. Do I sell in Houston or do I go to California or do I just have both? I gave myself permission to have both. I had 11 homes at one time because I gave myself permission to have whatever it is that I have in my mind. Don't, uh, don't trap yourself with this or that. Give yourself both or neither. Mm. So if you can go back in your life and you could either edit a moment, kind of like back to the future, and or just relive a moment, what moment would you go back to if you're in the delorean what year and day you would go back to either to just watch it one more time if anything i might go back to the first grade and go thank the first grade teacher who told me i would never be able to read write communicate never mount a thing never go very far in life because the very thing she told me i wasn't going to be able to do is what i end up doing so i go thank her because probably if she hadn't have said that i probably wouldn't be who i am today that was a very significant thing and, and most people would say, well, why would you thank somebody telling you you can't do something? Well, that's exactly what I needed at that stage in my life to go on my journey. So I'd probably go back to thank her because she died before I ever got to, you know, meet her up and catch up with her. She was up in age. She was 70-something when I was, when I was in school, when I was in elementary school. So I'd go thank her. I've thanked her in my head. I feel completely satisfied with it. But if I was to be able to do that, I would certainly go back and say hi and thank her. What is the, do you ever get depressed? 
No, I'm not a depressed. Depression is a comparison to, from your current reality to a fantasy. And mm. I learned the difference between an objective and a fantasy. A fantasy is when you expect things to be one-sided. Nothing's one-sided. You know, that's an illusion. When you meet somebody and you infatuate with them, you're blind to the downside and you're conscious of the upside. And then you think, oh, that's going to stay that way. No, it isn't. It's going to show you both sides over time in a, in a relationship. So I learned a long time from just watching and observing life. Life has two sides, has positives and negatives and ups and downs. And so I don't see myself with unrealistic expectations. I set real objectives and I don't waste my time on things that are fantasies. I, I focus on what I know I can do and that I really love doing that I'm spontaneously great at. And so I don't have the depression. I don't have this, oh my God, because depression is comparison of your current reality to a fantasy. So I've, I've learned not to go after fantasies. And I, and I, did I have some low periods up until about 30 because I had unrealistic expectations to be one-sided expectation, others to live in my values, expectations to believe in other people's values. All that got cleared up about age 30. And now I'm pretty grateful for my life. I got the largest collection of gratitudes of anybody you've ever met. 9,000 pages of gratitude. So you do it daily? What's your... Uh, what's you're your... already listed. You're already listed. I am? Yeah, you're, you're, your show is already on there. Oh, that's awesome. I want to see a little screenshot. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's on the thing. I could pull it up. I can show it to you. But I document every day what I'm getting to do, who I'm getting to meet, the consults I get to do, the places I get to travel, uh, you know, everything. I document it all. Well, because I'm also grateful, and you're all already listed in my gratitude book, I think we're going to be lifetime friends. Fantastic. <laughs> Why not? We're, we're, we started with a lifetime journey today on this, on this uh, podcast. And I, I can't say that, that that's the first time I had somebody do that many little uh, questions about my, my journey. Most people want to know, you know about how to solve this or whatever. I'm open to whatever people want on the podcast. I'm, I'm, I go with the flow. I just, I'm, a firm, I'm a firm believer that, you know, we're here to do what we're here to do and yeah. get on with it. I just feel that uh, you have such a great adventure. And I think everybody's life is an adventure, but some people don't see it this way. Some people, just like you said, are suffering with their own victim mindset. And it's, it's such a, uh, you know, people rob themselves from, from having this joy of life. Uh, so what's wrong with the world today? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I see things differently. I, I learned about the law of heuristic escalation, which is a sociological law, that any time an ideologue comes along with an ideal, mm. an ideology, and promotes it, some with an, an opposite ideologue, where the opposite ideal comes in to balance it. So the pro-life, pro-abortion, pro-guns, anti-guns, pro-Palestinian, anti-Palestinian, pro-Israeli, anti-Israeli. I, I know that those are always rising together and escalating together, and the more right somebody becomes about an opinion, the more equal and opposite opinion comes in to create a pair of opposites. Heraclitus, the Greek philosopher, called it the unity of opposites. And his, his wisdom was profound. Parmenides also talked about it in his time as a, as a corollary. And so I've been seeing this in Aristotle and Hegel and the philosophers of the ages have talked about it. So I learned that standing on their shoulders and realizing these pairs of opposites are part of life and to not strive for one but to embrace both. Mm. You know, the Buddha says the desire for that which is unobtainable, one side of a magnet, trying to get a pole, a positive pole without a negative pole, and the desire to avoid the other side of the magnet, the negative pole, is futility and sort of source of suffering. And people keep looking for a one-sided world instead of embracing the two sides life has to offer. When you see both sides simultaneously, as Wilhelm Wundt, the father of experimental psychology, said, you have gratitude and grace 
and you see the hidden order and the apparent chaos. And so I teach people how to ask questions. My whole Demartini method in psychology is to show people the questions to ask themselves to liberate themselves from the things that they're in bondage to that they occupy space and time in their mind and run their life. If you're highly infatuous, somebody, you can't sleep at night. If you're highly resentful, you can't sleep at night. But if you love somebody, you sleep soundly. Yeah. And true love is a balance of opposites, not one-sidedness. People confuse infatuation with love. So I'm, I teach people how to love and how to see both sides and how to embrace both sides and set real objectives that get achieved. And when they do, they're grateful. And they know they have expectations on people to be not one-sided. If you expect your girlfriend to be nice and never mean, you have a delusion. If you communicate in her value, she'll be nice. If you challenge her value, she'll be mean. She's going to be both along the journey. So if you have real objectives, real balanced expectations, your life is grateful. If you have a polarized, monopole expectation that somebody's supposed to be one-sided and they're supposed to live in your values and not their own, you have delusions, you're going to be depressed. And your depression is a feedback to let you know that you're having unrealistic expectations. Mm. And it's time to grow up <laughs> and get objective. Yeah. Unrealistic expectations is what's causing depression, not chemical imbalance and all oh, that. The chemical imbalance model is a psychiatric uh, pharmaceutical promotion since 1991. And people yeah. think they have a deficiency of drugs. 70% of the females on the in the United States are on some sort of psych medicine. It's ridiculous. Another solution. The solution is to take command of your your expectations and set real objectives that really align with your values that are balanced and your life is fulfilled. And you got way more gratitude. You're in your executive center where you're self-governed instead of your amygdala. Another trait of the victim mindset, right? So convenient to have chemical imbalance. Yeah, people want to do it. But, you know, as Paul Dirac said, it's not that we don't know so much. It's we know so much that isn't so. We go around and we're basically bombarded by moral hypocrisies from mothers, fathers, preachers, teachers, conventions, traditions, and mores from institutions of religion and politics that love to keep people disempowered because that, that way it's easier for them to control. You have to decide how you want to live your life and take command of your life. If you don't empower your life in any area of your life, people will overpower you. If you don't if you don't empower yourself intellectually, you'll be told what to think. If you don't empower yourself in business, you'll be told what to do. If you don't empower yourself in finance, you'll be told what you're worth. If you don't empower yourself in relationship, you'll be doing honeydew things around the house that's uninspiring. If you don't empower yourself socially, you'll be told propaganda and misinformation. If you don't empower yourself physically, you'll be told what drugs to take and organs to remove. And if you don't empower yourself spiritually, you'll be caught in some Aristotelian antiquated geocentric construct of spirituality. Instead of acting in some sort of anthropomorphic deity, instead of actually understanding the magnificent and mathematical harmony of the universe. So I'm a, I'm a firm believer of educating yourself and empowering your life and giving yourself permission to shine, not shrink. That's awesome. I recently made a post that there is nothing, there is no right and wrong. And it's all only because there are so many different perceptions and so many people involved. So while you think something is wrong it's it's right for someone else and why you think something is right is wrong from someone else so it and, and those perceptions could change with time yes. so what, what was wrong actually ended up being right yes that, it's exactly it. milton said you can make a heaven out of a hell or a hell out of a heaven and thinking makes it so and heraclitus basically said that if the the wise individual lives beyond the moral trap you know and then Kipling says it's the, the straitjacket is the dualisms that we get trapped in trying to avoid one and seek the other. So this has been stated through and more, most people live in moral hypocrisies. Your grandmother comes and says, now, be nice. Don't be mean. Be kind. Don't be cruel. Be giving. Don't be taking. Be generous. Don't be stingy. Be peaceful. Don't be wrathful. And then beats the crap out of, of grandpa five minutes later. <laughs>
<laughs> That's right. And want so, some cash. I want to go shopping. <laughs> so hate is not the opposite of love. It's just a version of love. Love is the synthesis of all pairs of opposites mm-hmm. that are inseparable. You know, we... We try to separate the inseparables, divide the indivisibles, label the unlabelables, name the inevitables, polarize the unpolarizables, and we miss out on the magnificence of the synthesis of those two, which is true love. What do you think is the meaning of life? Well, you got two types. You got the artificial meaning that you apply to things based on your subjective bias, interpretation of what's real. And then you've got the meaning, the golden mean. Aristotle said between excess and deficiency, the golden mean. So if you're infatuated with somebody and you're, you're blind to the downsides and conscious of the upsides, your intuition is trying to point out the downsides to bring it back into the mean. So you're extracting meaning out of your misinterpretation of reality. And if you're resentful, you're, you're conscious of the downsides, unconscious of the upsides. So your intuition is trying to bring up the upsides to find the meaning, the mean between the pairs of opposites. So your intuition is trying to get you back to the golden mean, the, the, the perfect center point, the homeostatic synthesis point the integrated part of the forebrain in the in the brain but we then autocrat automatically create artificial meanings of things that's a bad thing and that's a good thing mm-hmm. those superficial transient extractions of meaning are not where the power is the power is learning how to find the real mean the balance between the pairs of opposites and synchronously see whatever you're seeing where is its opposite and center yourself and poise yourself and find true meaning when you do, you realize there's a hidden order in your apparent chaos and you'll be grateful and you'll be actually love your life. So you love questions. You believe that the truth is behind the questions and asking good questions. What are the three or five deepest questions and the questions that would reveal the best out of people so they can draw from their own self, from their own self-awareness, what is their actual purpose and how to love themselves and how to free themselves from the shackles, from the chains that they've put themselves into, how to get out of their prison cell. What are three or five questions you would suggest? I've got thousands of questions, but I'll I'll just hit some of them up from the method. What specific trait, action or inaction do you perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating that you admire or despise most? So get really clear about what you're looking up to or down on. Because whenever you judge somebody, you're, you're going to feel empty. So first, identify what you're judging. Mm-hmm. Then number two is go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating the same specific trait action, in action that you admire or despise most and find out where it was, when it was, to whom you've done it to and who perceives you doing it until you own what you see in them quantitatively and qualitatively. Because whatever you see in others, it's, it represents something you're judging in you. If you're resentful to somebody and you're pointing your finger at them, that's because you're actually feeling ashamed of that action in your own life and they're bringing it to your awareness and you're dissociating from that shame and going into pride and imagining yourself too proud to admit what you see in them inside you. And so what you do is by going in there and finding out where you've done that and humbling you and bringing you back down and them out of the pit, you off the pedestal and leveling the playing field, you get equanimity and then you get equity and now you know how to communicate in a fair exchange. That liberates. And it brings you back to love and you don't have emptiness because emptiness comes from being too proud or too humble to admit what you see in others inside you. The third question is, is now go to a moment where and when you perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating the trait you admire or despise. And in that moment, how is it an upside, a benefit to you or a drawback to you and go find the other side? Because otherwise you're under the illusion that that's a bad trait or a good trait. And it's not. It's just a trait that has two sides. And you've been blinded 
by moral hypocrisy thinking it's bad or good. And they and then that that puts you in a trap because now they're running your life extrinsically with a seek or avoid response. And you're in your amygdala instead of your executive function. So you go in there and find out the benefits to what you think is terrible until it's not terrible anymore. It's neither positive nor negative. And the thing you think is terrific, find the drawbacks till it's neither positive or negative. And it's not something infatuated or resent. Then go find out where you've done the behavior. How did it benefit others? Or how is it a disservice to others to take yourself out of shame and to take yourself out of pride? Because if as long as you're in pride and shame, you're not authentic. And then go and find out where this individual has the opposite trait. Because I'm not a nice person. I'm not a mean person. But I have both behaviors. Where is the same individual that you're judging have the other side to break the label you projected onto them? And then at that exact moment, when they've done the behavior, at that moment, who's doing the opposite? Because your mind will never see something without measuring it through a contrast by the law of contrast. So where is the opposite going on in your life? Because as long as you're infatuated with protection, you're going to get an aggressor. If you're infatuated with, with ease, you're going to get difficulty. If you're infatuated with peace, you're going to get a warrior. Whatever you infatuate with, which keeps you juvenile independent, you attract its opposite to break you free, to liberate you, to set you free from the addiction that you're under to the fantasy of a one-sided world. So go find out who's doing the opposite and liberate. And then another question is, if they were to do exactly what you hoped they would have done when you resented them, what would have been the drawback? Because a lot of times you have a fantasy about how life's supposed to be and people don't match it. You punish them and then you resent them. But they're actually serving you in a way they're trying to get you to wake up and stop judging you and them and help you see a balanced view of life and get you transcended from the paradoxes of this moral hypocrisy. And they're there in your life for a lesson to, to guide you as a teacher instead of being something you're resenting and trying to avoid. And then you grow up. So those are a few of the questions. I have hundreds of questions, but those are just few of the questions that can liberate people and hold them accountable mechanically and methodically to liberate people from emotional baggage that they've been carrying around thinking they're some victim. Do you believe in God? Well, if you're talking about some sort of an anthropomorphic de deity that punishes rewards that was made up in man's image, uh, kind of like a Homer or Hesiod, Hesiod, Homer and Iliad or whatever, no. Do I believe in a field of intelligence that is making sure that all life is evolving, that's basically organizing a hidden order inside the life that we have the capacity to mathematically perceive and become aware of? Yes. If we call that the grand organized design or the intel field of intelligence that permeates the universe, that's a Spinoza-type construct instead of an anthropomorphic deity or geomorphic or zoomorphic deity. There are thousands of deities that have gone extinct that were in those categories. I have no interest in that. I'm not interested in human beings with their fears creating fantasies and anthropomorphic deities to solve their fantasies. But I do believe that the deeper you probe into the mysteries of existence and the more you study the mysteries of cosmology and and at the micro and the macro worlds, the more humble you are to a field of intelligence that's obviously directing the game. And it's not something that's like a humanized system. It's just a field of intelligence that allows the mathematical beauty of the organic compounds and the atoms and the order and the cosmological web that's formed and the laws of gravity and the laws of physics. The study of the laws of the universe are non-violatable laws. The study of human laws are non-livable. And people confuse those two. I dedicate my life to the study of universal laws and then apply that to human behavior. Well, that's the essence of God, that it's we cannot comprehend the intelligence. So if it's it's not a human, it's not an old dude sitting upstairs, 
but it's uh, it's the intelligence it's it's the creation of the world so do you believe god created the world well i don't know if we even have a creation i don't even know if there's a beginning or an end i'm not sure that's a real term you know in cosmos i wrote a big textbook on cosmology and i, I refuted the big bang theory i've got 81 refutations of it and i found that there's flaws in that and that's based on the assumption by Lemaitre that basically says, you know, that he's the one that started the idea of a Big Bang. And he basically said that we have to have an explanation so we can put God in the equation and so that God started this thing from nothing. But I'm not certain that there's a, a founding point. I don't know if there's a beginning or an end. That's a questionable. That's a question. Because if you ask, where's the beginning? you got to ask, how did the beginning come about? And you get back into the mystery. We might have an eternal universe that's constantly remodeling itself with an infinite variety of, of pairs of opposites at all scales of existence demonstrating love. And we may be living in a, a loving universe that's constantly revolving, evolving. And it's a participatory universe, as Wheeler says, that we're all participating and transforming it. And it's constantly transforming and evolving. And it's never been the same and it never will be the same. Well, if we see it transformed uh, of, for what it is today, then maybe beginning is what it started as such. <laughs> if it needs to have a beginning. If it needs to have a beginning. Yeah, we, we see the, the reason why we get caught in beginnings, if you study philosophy, you'll see that the idea of a transient versus an eternal is one of the questions. Is the universe eternal or is it transient? If, it's the, if you're coming from the amygdala, you think in terms of life and death and survival, and you fear death and you look for life. And so you have a beginning and end. But if you have a transcendent state, a more of a deeper eschological question, you may ask the question, is it even have a beginning or an ending? And, and we may not be able to handle that. Our mind may not feel comfortable with the idea of an eternity, but maybe there is. So I can't say one way or the other. Cosmology, there's models that are cosmological models that are eternal and there are transient ones. The problem with transient ones, you got to explain a cause and an origin. And then you go, you jump into the mystical to try to solve it. But the other ones you can keep remodeling and recycling. But we have to we have one problem, and that's the physics of, of entropy. There has to be a new model that's a self-organizing systems that counterbalance entropy in order to have an eternal system. I've been working on that since I was 18, mm -hmm. and I've been writing about it, thousands of pages on that topic. And Wolfram says that most of the ideas about what's entropy and disorder is simply computational boundaries of awareness. We just don't have the awareness. But as we grow in our awareness, what we thought was entropy has a hidden order to it. So I've been doing that with human behavior, finding a hidden order in human behavior, what other people think is entropy and chaotic and, and random. When people think they've got a random event in their life, I help them find the hidden order in it. And when they do, they're brought to tears of gratitude and they feel love for the event. So mm -hmm. I believe that there's a hidden order in life and it's our job to keep digging and keep finding it. And yeah. it does not necessarily have a beginning or an ending. So you Conservation have, laws. You, you have studied uh, philosophers, you've studied the yogis, you've studied every, everyone, and you accept everything. Uh, you don't separate it on right, wrong, bad, or good. Uh, so I assume that you also accept death as, as something good. Yes. Uh, so I, I, I have a death, I have a grief process. I've taken 5,000 people who've gone through death and they've gone through grief. And I'm absolutely certain. I mean, I, 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 I've given money back guarantees. I've done it on television. I've done it at university as I've done it. I haven't failed once. I assure you that our fear of death has nothing to do with anything about death. It has everything with the fear of our fantasies being lost, loss of our fantasy and the loss of our pride. Because when somebody is down, resentful and shame, they think about taking their life. They don't have a fear of death. They have a fear of life continuing. 
So if I change the ratios of perception, I can change the fear of life or fear of death. And I've demonstrated that right in front of people in seminars and demonstrated, proved it to them. So I, I, I know how to dissolve the fear. I've actually hired to help people in their death in hospice, just to help people transition without the grief. So have you uh, studied Jesus? I wrote a book on the life of, of Christ, the life of Jesus years ago, probably 30 something years ago now, 32 years ago, I think. And um, yeah, I've, I've definitely been writing about that. And I looked at all the scrolls that were written. There's 900 scrolls that have been accumulated that are not necessarily the ones that are in the synoptic gospels and the ones that are in the text that most people think is the Bible today. That's a very small piece of the text that were around at the early centuries. And when you read all of them, you get a different version of what the story they've made of Jesus from the Catholic. Mm. Different story. What do you think is the main difference? What is something that people who read the Bible well, daily they, don't? They, the church has tried to make an institution that is somebody to try to make him supernatural and try to put only the positive spin on it. But, you know, the infancy gospels have things that show other things. The idea the gospel of Mary shows that he might have been married. Uh, Bartholomew, the... The, the Gospel of Bartholomew, there's lots of them that have a whole other story that yeah. were written in the second century, first century, third century. And some people think they're heretical. Well, the only reason they're called heretical, they were once taught in the, the early founding fathers, Origen and Eusebius, uh, and these guys used these texts. As Tertullian, they all used these texts in the early ones. But it, in the fourth century, they, some of them got wiped out. So no matter how many denominations are out there right now, everything starts with the Catholic Church and whatever they decided. Well, no, the, the Catholic and the Greek Orthodox were split. And before that, the Gnostics and Agnostics split. And before that, the churches were dispersed all over Asia Minor. And they all had different versions and different texts that they were using. It wasn't until Constant came along and started to create a kind of a universal religion for his political purposes. And he studied Mithraism. He wasn't even a Christian originally. He was a Mithraic Persian in the study of Zoroastrian. So when that came about, then all of a sudden Christianity became a, a, a useful tool for the Romans. And then they basically made sure that anything that came along, when the Arian heresies came in in 325, you know, there was lots of debates about, did, did Constantine make a god out of him? They apotheosed him because they made, in Greeks, Greek and Rome, they made gods out of people. Rome was noted for making apotheosis, make humans into gods. So they, they deified him at that time. Before that, there wasn't a deification. It was a Tertullian Trinitarian doctrine that got merged after the Arian heresies that started the deification of Jesus. And all of a sudden, he now becomes one with God the Father, God the Holy Ghost, and God himself as a, as a way of solving the, the mysteries of the, the Docetists and others. Did, did, did man suffer? When he's, did he, was he a god or was he a human? A human with God character traits? A god with human character traits? Could he suffer if he was? How could he be a god? If he didn't suffer, how could he be a human? These were arguments in the early centuries. I have all laid out in the textbooks I wrote on the history of the evolution of the story of Jesus. And what's your conclusion? That part of it is mythology that's been handed down through the ages. It's a composite. There's no question about that. And part of it may have been a bit of history but we don't have a lot of data on the history. What is the truth about Christianity? Basically, the truth is that institutional organizations have kind of tweaked it for their own objectives. And so don't confuse the institutional Christianity with Christ. Mm. Love so, of, the love of human beings and to be able to love 
and to be able to see the hidden order and to see that uh, love thyself, love God and your all your heart, mind and soul, love thy neighbor as thyself is, you know, the highest of commandments over the Ten Commandments. I still think that's got some merit, but I'm not so much interested in subordinating myself to Jesus. I'm not interested in exaggerating or minimizing. I'm interested in being present with the love that's represented by Christ. That I'm interested in. But I'm not interested in subordinating to some character that lived 2,000 years ago that people keep thinking it's going to come back because that you're going to be waiting for eternity. In the early centuries, they, they actually believed that there was going to be some sort of return. But that's been debated. And there's there's also a claim that there's a body sitting there in a, in a sepulcher in the Holy Land. So if there's the body, then there's no resurrection. So there's there's a lot of controversies around that if you go digging into the controversies. So I don't waste my time on that. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the essence of how to live masterfully as a human being. Because when you stop and think about it, God can't be limited to a human being at a human location with a human language in a universe that's vast with a small speck called Earth. There's got to be something much bigger than game playing. Because somewhere in the future, 100 years, 200 years from now, we're going to be colonizing and we're going to set up new philosophical views and we're probably going to run into who knows maybe other life out there for all we know someday when we do our our vision of what religion is is going to have to expand and if we look at the history of religions i've studied three thousand different religions over the last anthropological journey of 300 years i mean three three hundred thousand years you can see that there's an evolution of the development of the brain sitting in the religious constructs yeah. So the study of eschatology and the study of theology is the personification of our observation of nature through our brain development. Yeah. Well, Jesus himself did not like religion too much. And yeah, the institutional of it. I think I think if we were to if we would have been stuck with just the one character and, and not the other institutions, we'd probably done pretty good. It's the yeah. institutional systems that started creating some of the, the challenges. Who is the mentor or the philosopher or the, the person that has made the biggest impact in your life? I don't know if there's any one. <clears throat> I've gone through every philosopher I've been able to. I wrote a book on philosophies, and there's probably about 700 philosophers sitting in that. And there's Eastern, Western, Japanese, Chinese, Greek, Indian, Persian, you know, I try to stand on the shoulders of scientists, religious philosophers, thinkers of all different sites, scientists, math, mathematicians. I went through all the list of all the mathematicians, started going through there's thousands of them and started to look at some of their work and say the world of mathematics by James Newman on it. I, I try to stand on the shoulders of great minds. That's my my love. That's what I try to do. I don't know if there's any one philosopher that's influenced me. I think they all have an influence. I'm a syncretic philosopher, synthesizing and integrating information through time. And when you study that, you can easily see that much of the, even the Christian stories, there's predate, you can find these. In the, the variety of religious experience by William James, he talks about the anesthetic religions, that religions are built upon layer upon layer upon layer through time. That's my observation. It's very easy to see. If you study Sumerians and Egyptians, you'll see that there's motifs that have been built and study earlier civilization, you'll see motifs built upon motifs upon motifs. By the time we get to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, you see it's built layer upon layer. Yeah, there are patterns. That you can patterns. See. Yeah. So um, I'm sure you remember Wayne Dyer. He did like a full circle of research and then ended up uh, concluding that it's the foundation of, of 
joy is gratitude, which maybe that's yeah. why. I've known, I knew Wayne from 1983. We used to lecture a lot together and I knew his, his Maya, who's his main woman that took care of all his stuff. And my, my lady was Linda. They were, they were all very close friends. So I've known Wayne since 1983 until he passed about a decade ago. And uh, yeah, amazing guy, but he learned at gratitude. You know, I wrote a book called Count Your Blessings, the, the power of gratitude, how the healing power of gratitude and love. I still think that grace Love, inspiration, enthusiasm, certainty, and presence. The six transcendentals are what I'm interested in helping people master their life. I love this word enthusiasm. I think that it comes from Greek enthusiasm. the God within. Yeah, the God within. So yeah. Well, when I believe, I believe when you're inspired and you're you're acting, doing what you really love, you have an enthusiasm. I I love what I'm doing. I'm grateful for the opportunity to do it. I'm inspired by sharing ideas. I'm enthusiastically doing it every day, seven days a week. I'm present when I'm doing it. As you right now, we're here, and yeah. I'm I'm certain about what I research, and I I share my best best knowledge I can on a daily basis. That's why I appreciate the questions. So you're fascinated by by people's mind. Tell me about the connection between mind, body, soul, heart. Uh, who runs this whole machine? Well, every time you have a perfectly balanced mind, your heart opens. Because when you have a balanced mind, your executive center goes online. It automatically activates the hypothalamus and the areas of the autonomics are brought into balance. And you have you don't have a a three cycle per second delta wave, you don't have a 13 cycle beta wave, you have now an alpha theta wave, which is around 7.8 to eight cycles per second, which initiates gamma synchronicity in the forebrain, the forebrain synchronizes, and you now have an aha inspired speechless grace. And that is a biological, I can recreate it. I can take anybody in a seminar, ask them questions, hold them accountable, answer it and reach that state repeatedly over and over again. I do it every weekend in my breakthrough experience. So we have the capacity using scientific methods to reproduce a graceful, inspired state where people are literally in tears of gratitude and speechless in awe over the magnificent hidden order or divine order, divine perfection, whatever you want to call it, that's present in their life and have a spiritual experience. Uh, just like Hegel said, the synthesis of pairs of opposites, thesis and antithesis, when they're synthesized, a spiritual experience is born. Well, Wundt called it the synchronicity of opposites. Jung called it the acausal synchronicity. Wolfgang Pauli called it coincidences. Whatever you want to name it, it's the integration of all pairs of opposites. Heraclitus called it the unity of opposites. Parmenides called it the state of ground of being. Each individual had their own way of describing this perfect symmetry point. Of, of the mirror symmetry. Of, and in chemistry, we call it enantiomers. In quantum physics, we call it the, the particles and antiparticles. The terms have been around in every different field. That law is still there. And theology and, and science don't fight. True science and true religion don't fight. They all point to the same path. Yeah. So how do you heal the heart? How do you heal the trauma? The emotional trauma. There is no trauma except in your mind. You've chosen to see only the downsides. You have not looked for the upsides. It's always. I have people, I have people every week come to me with that been traumatized. They've been beaten. They've been incest. They've been raped or whatever it is. I go good. So let's find. Let's go to that moment. And in that moment, what are the upsides? Well, there was no upsides. No. What are the upsides? Hold yourself accountable and quit living in a fantasy that life's supposed to be the opposite. And this is brought into your life to break your addiction to a fantasy. What's the benefit? 
once we find the benefits, the trauma is gone. The trauma is simply a choice of perception. And we have control over our perception, decisions, and actions in life. And if we get trapped in a terrible, it's terrible, there's no benefit in it. Well, we've stuck ourselves in that belief system because we made something bad. Just like you said, that's an illusion. It's neither. At the level of the essence of the soul, it's neither positive or negative. At the level of this existence of the senses, it's either positive or negative. Our sense is foolish with phenomenological perceptions and subjective biases and, and, and moral hypocrisies that we've been indoctrinated by. But the second we transcend that and see both sides, I can take people that have been beaten. I had a woman who was raped by 100 men for three and a half days, lost her voice. And I had her go in four hours in a television crew in front of a, te- a TV station, go in there and find the blessings until she's in t- state of gratitude. Now she's married. She's out there writing a book. She's now going and speaking professionally. And she said, one of the greatest things that ever happened to me is that event. I'm not afraid of anything now. And I'm now doing what I love. And prior to that, I was in a, I was dependent. I was living in a fantasy and I, I got a wake up call by that event. So it's not what happens to you. It's what you perceive, decide and act upon. And if you ask resourceful questions to balance out your mind, you can take anything in your life. There's nothing that your mortal body can experience that your mortal soul can't love. Nothing. And I love the challenge of showing people that. Do you do it uh, online via Zoom call or people have to come to your in-person? I do it. I, I'm about to do one in London and online in a few hours. And I, I just did one this last week in L.A. And last week before that, I did it in Istanbul. I do it every week. So as long as you answer honestly what, what positives came out of the moment that you, you called. You don't make anything up. You just look. Because inside the mind, when somebody is going through an event that they think that there's no benefits to, they'll go into a freeze response, dissociate, and create a fantasy in their mind to counterbalance it for homeostatic purposes in the brain. The brain will automatically do that. A lot of the dissociative identities are people trapped in the fantasy that was there a result of the so-called trauma. If I bring those synchronously together at the same time, the trauma and the fantasy dissolve. They're reintegrated. And so I hold them accountable to go to the moment of the perception and find out what the mind had that's the opposite. And the moment they do, I had a guy that was was uh, was driving down the highway. Four cars came up around him. They stopped on the highway, got out with thing, hoods over their thing, with eyes, with machine guns and guns, and knocked out his window and grabbed him and put him in the trunk and drove off and then ranched him for big money. I mean, millions of dollars because he owned a major company. And they basically hijacked him and threatened his family. Both people would call that traumatic. In two hours, we had him in a state of grace, thanking them for doing it. Because what he did is he realized how valuable his family was. And he was taking them for granted. He was focusing on his work and not, and his wife was about to divorce him. He wasn't seeing his kids. That got him close to his family and kids when he was in that trunk. It also made him realize he dissociated, imagine himself running through a field, holding on with his kids and his wife and being appreciative of them. It also, because he was gone away from his company for five weeks and, and didn't get to eat hardly and didn't and got beaten, he ended up losing weight, dropping his blood pressure, getting in on a health kick. When he finally got let loose and paid the money, he ended up actually, his team rose to the occasion and the team made more money than the cost of the ransom during the month he was gone. And he realized now I can run my company without me I'm now with my family and they're running the company, making me more money than I was. I was in the way. And now I was, I don't have to lose my wife and my family over this situation. I'm very grateful. And my health is back to normal. So he chose for, for, for a while, he was under post-traumatic stress labels. Two hours 
me talking to him, he was in a state of gratitude and he's not had stress since. That was over with. Yeah. So it's the quality of the questions you ask that determines the quality of your life. If you ask questions that you're unconscious of the answers to and become fully conscious, things that you think are tragedy or turmoil or ecstasy are nothing but illusions. There's always a pair of opposites present in a, in a wise mind. So I uh, remember the first time I saw you, you were in a documentary, The Secret, that was probably 15 years ago. And The Secret is, is a good documentary because it helps people who are hopeless to, uh, to start experimenting with uh, visualization and manifestation and just, uh, you know, people have nothing to lose. They're like, I oh, know it seems silly, but let me, let me test it out. And how much of those events we attract, how much of those, like my dad used to get a lot of, uh, he used to get involved in a lot of accidents. And I was like, you're attracting this. <laughs> How much of, of this do you think of those events do we attract or how much of those events are happening uh, based on the order you're talking about, that each human has an order? There's an order. It's all an order. It's just a matter of asking the right question to do it. That's my job. I'm, I know how to help people ask the right question to get the order out of it. See, if we're addicted to protection, we're going to attract an aggressor. If we're addicted to peace, we're going to attract a warrior. Because anything that you're addicted to that you think has got a positive than a negative, you'll become juvenile dependent on because you'll put it on a pedestal and you'll minimize yourself and your soul doesn't want you juvenile dependent because it's inauthentic. So it's going to intuitively bring you the upsides to that, the downsides of its opposite to get you back in equilibrium. It's a homeostatic interceptive process of the brain. So the second you go in there and you get addicted to one side, if you're addicted to innocence, you'll attract the sexual perpetrator. Whatever you are addicted to that you are infatuated with and fantasizing about, it's opposite's going to have to be there to break that addiction to get you to see the balance of life because it's got two poles of a magnet. So if you're addicted to one thing, you attract its opposite. When I've worked with rape cases, I found that every case. I've got 1,300 cases I've cleared. And in the process of doing it to help people, instead of being victims of their history, they become masters of destiny and use that experience as a, as a catalyst to do something amazing with their life. Oprah used it as a catalyst. She didn't become the victim the rest of her life. Some people do. They want to run their story and play the victim and get sympathy, but you don't empower your life that way. So I basically go in there and find out where were the opposite, where were you addicted to the opposite? Because as long as you do, you need that event to break that addiction, to associate the pain with the fantasy of the pleasure. And so if you don't, if you think that this is good and this is bad and you get caught in a moral hypocrisy and try to get a one-sided life, you're going to be a victim of history. But if you see that those are always paired and they're there to teach you how to love, which is a synthesis of those, you're going to realize that every event is on the way to teach you how to be authentic in love. And when you see that, you're liberated. So do you believe that once when we figure out the order, we could change it? or There's nothing to change. If you have to fix it or change it, you didn't see the order in it. <laughs> <laughs> nothing to fix. That's why there's nothing to regret in life. There's something to experience and thank you for, be thankful for, because it's all part of the way. It's all part of the journey. And gratitude and thankfulness what is that uh, where is it directed to is it directed to god well you can it depends on where you think that you're grateful for you can direct it to whatever you want and you want to be in a delusion you want to create an anthropomorphic deity and talk to something in dissociation if you take electronic stimulation and magnetic stimulation into the bridal temporal lobe and you can stimulate that you'll have hyper religiosity you'll think you're talking to gods it's a delusion but you think you're doing it but what's actually when you're actually present and you're grateful for the order, 
you don't put a boundary on what that is. You're just grateful. You don't put a, a, a you don't put a form on it. In Islam, they don't put a form on God. It's not an anthropomorphism. In Christianity and Judaism, there's anthropomorphisms. But in, but in, in, in some theologies, there's no anthropomorphism because it doesn't want people to point to something and, and limit it to something. It's an unlimited presence. Yeah. So, so I'm more likely to just say thank you. I don't, if I take credit for me or I give credit to somebody else, I've just boxed it in and narrowed it. Because it, it's a murky thing called causality. Anytime you have a false causality and say, well, that's the cause of my happiness or that's the cause of my pain or whatever, you're, you have a delusion because we don't know what really the causalities are. If we say, well, so-and-so uh, beat my, bro my, my brother uh, and he's a bully and he's the cause of my brother's pain. Really? Or you got an overprotecting family there and he's needing to bring in the thing that he needs to grow up. And if so, well, is that because the bully is just attacking him? And it's because he's a bad person. Well, you, okay. Well, you could say, well, he came from a family that that's how they grew up and that's what they did. Well, you could say, well, that family came up from poverty. Well, that you could go on and play with murky causalities and go all the way back to original sin, if you want, and go back to the origin. And then you have to assume that there's a beginning. And these are all murky philosophical regressions, you know, infinite regressions. And you can easily cut holes in those philosophically with arguments. Yeah, I don't waste my time on murky things like that. I'm, when I'm grateful, I'm just grateful. And if you want to say grateful from somebody, well, just know if you put a, a gratitude on them, just see them as that whole universe. Don't limit them to just their form. Because Schopenhauer said, uh, it, you know, you become the true self to the degree that you make everything else yourself. Where's our boundary? We don't know where our boundaries are, really. Mm, that's true. We create them as we go. If you have to, uh, final question, if you have to explain to a six-year-old, the function and the purpose of the soul, the heart, the mind, and the body, how would you explain it to a six-year-old kid? Well, it depends on the, the wealth of knowledge of the six-year-old, because some are pretty bright uh, in the language. But I would just say that when you have a balanced mind, your heart opens, you're grateful, you're authentic, and that's the state of unconditional love, S-O-U-L. I keep it simple. Mm, great. Now... Imagine that this is your last moment. <laughs> what will be your last word so we can end this podcast in style? You have 10 seconds left. Uh, what is the message you want to leave to humanity? What is the message with the biggest legacy? Ask yourself, no matter what's happened in your life, how is it helping you fulfill what's most meaningful? And give yourself permission to shine, not shrink. Don't compare yourself to others. Compare your own daily actions to your own highest value. And give yourself permission to shine. That's it. Just don't don't sit and be second at being somebody else. Be first at being you. Dr. DiMartini, this has been a very fulfilling conversation for me specifically. And I'm sure that all of our viewers are enjoying this. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I'm so grateful for you for joining us. Uh, I hope that we can do this again sometime. So thank you again and make it a great day. Thank you. Thank you for the uh, great opportunity to be with you.